It's great to come together as God's family on a Sunday morning. Um, As we come to God's Word, let me pray for us. Father, thank You for bringing us here this morning. Thank You for Your Word. And thank You for worship. Thank You for the fellowship of this family of believers. Thank You that You do not leave us alone, but You give us Your Spirit and You give us one another to walk through this life with. Father, I pray as we come to Your Word this morning, You would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what it is that You have for us. What it is that You want us to learn and what You want us to live. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, or if you haven't, then you will know, um, well, if you haven't, then you won't know, we've been in the middle of a sermon series uh, called The Story of Our Church. Uh, We're looking at the book of Acts and how the story of the church's beginnings in the book of Acts uh, really propels all of God's people on this journey in the world to be the church, to be God's people in the world and for the world. And we're looking at uh, what, is, uh, what is it about that early church that, that we learn from? What is it that, uh, about that early church that is our story? Because whenever we read God's Word, whenever we come to the Bible, we're not just looking at the story of somebody else. We're not looking at the story of another people and another time and another, another place. What we're really looking at and reading and participating in is our own story. God has taken us and He has gathered us as His people. And He has brought us into this story that He is telling about us. And this story that He calls us to be active participants in. And as we look at the story in the past, the beginnings of the church, for instance, we learn more and more about our place in the story. And we learn more and more about how God wants us to live out our part in the story today. So just to give us a brief recap of where we've been in God's Word, we've been in the book of Acts, and we've learned really about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, and about ourselves. In chapter 1, we see that Jesus came after His resurrection, and He stood there before the disciples, and He, told, he gave them their mission in the world. You are to be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then He disappeared. He went up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And Christ gives the people this mandate for mission in the world. He doesn't ask them to do it alone. He promises them the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon the church and giving them the power and giving them the ability to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus in the world. To go out and to, uh, to start to live this new life that God has called them to. So you have Jesus, you have the Spirit, and you have us, or you have the people there. And how is Jesus who called them and the Spirit that empowered them, and then it was the people who came together as the church and to go out into the world and to bring God's kingdom, His mercy and His justice, His love and His forgiveness into the world around them. And they form what is called the church. And... uh that's what this story has been about. And we asked a few weeks ago, what does it mean to be the church? And we, we saw that God's people, that the church is God's people united in selfless love for the world that Christ loves. They got together and they shared everything together. 
they sold their property and they gave it to the church in order to, to care for those who were in need. And what we've seen so far is this really wonderful, kind of idealized picture of the church. Things are going pretty well. I mean, yeah, Peter got arrested and God set him free, so that was good news. We had that one incident with Ananias and Sapphira, but let's just push that to the side. Things have been pretty good in the life of the church. But in the text that we come to today, you realize that not everything is good. When you get close up, when you start to really examine the picture that's here, you see cracks. You see that not all really is well. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Acts chapter 6. That's Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. It will be up on the screen. I believe it's probably in your bulletin. It's Acts chapter 6. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer, the ministry of the Word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God. So as much as we see a picture of selflessness in the early church, as much as we see them uh, selling all that they had and, uh, and giving it to the church for the distribution to the poor, we also see a little bit of self selfishness mixed in. What happens here is, is that um, the church had grown so fast. The church had grown so fast, and part of their mandate was to care for one another. It was to care for those who were widows, to care for those who were poor, for those who couldn't care for themselves. And uh, they never had a really great problem with giving. People were all about giving to the church. It was collecting this uh, this money and collecting the properties in order to distribute was never a problem. The problem came on the distribution side because that was a whole nother system entirely. It was something that they weren't really ready for because what they had to do is they had to come up with basically a welfare system on the fly to figure out how do we distribute all these things to all of these people who are in need. And when something like that happens, there's bound to be problems. In the daily distribution, we're told in this text, there was one set of widows who received plenty. They received plenty, all that they needed. And there was another set of widows that received nothing at all. Not nearly enough to sustain them. And so you have this discrepancy. 
It was their duty to care for widows. It was part of Jewish culture to care for widows in their society. It was part of what Jesus had taught them in order to uh, love others as, as uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. To love one another. He said, little children, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. They will know you by the love that you show one another. And so caring for the least of Jesus' brethren was something that was very important to the group. But here you have one group of widows receiving and one not receiving. It was a religious expectation. But Luke tells us that there were some widows who happened to be more equal than others. What we're told here is that there's a dispute between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And really what this is, it's a dispute along ethnic lines. They're all Jewish believers. They're all Jewish believers in Christ. But where they come from is two entirely different places. Hebraic Jews are the the ones who have lived in Jerusalem. They've lived in Israel their whole lives for generation after generation after generation. Their their family lines have lived in in that piece of real estate that was at that time called Israel. And uh, they belonged there. If you were to put it in today's terms, they were locals. (laughs) That was their home. These people, they spoke, uh, they spoke Greek because Greek was the language of the known world at the time. But they had maintained the traditions of their ancestors and they, they maintained the languages of Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, they considered themselves very Jewish. They had held on to that Jewish culture that defined them. The Hellenistic Jews, on the other hand, were completely different. <laughs> For hundreds of years, the the Jewish people had been scattered all across the known world. They had lived in every country imaginable. They had been enslaved or they had been free. It didn't matter, but they had been everywhere. And these people, these people largely were coming back to Jerusalem and bringing their families back to Jerusalem. Uh, A great pilgrimage back, especially at the end of their lives. Because it was a very special thing to die in Jerusalem to die in the city of God. If you were to die in Jerusalem, you had the special right to be buried in Jerusalem. And so these older families, these older couples would come and they would move back into Jerusalem so that they could die there. So they could be buried there. But what this meant was that uh, they were viewed as outsiders. They were not locals. They were not people who really belonged there. They had not maintained the traditions of their ancestors. They did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They only spoke Greek. And so they came back into the city. They came back in with very limited resources, with very limited family around them. And when the husband would die, the widow would be left on her own to fend for herself. There were social programs in place, but uh, once you joined up to that new upstart group of Christians those pretty much got cut off for you. And you were left at the mercy of the church. So if you were a Hellenistic Jew, if you were a widow uh, from the Hellenistic side, uh, you were viewed as coming in as an outsider and stealing the resources of the community. So I'm not exactly sure what happened, but the Hebraic Jews... uh, Maybe they had uh, an inside man in the delivery truck business where he would just skip the last stop on his route 
and not drop off that food. Maybe when they waited on the tables, uh, they intentionally left the Hellenistic widows to the very, very end so there would be uh, nothing left for them. If there was anything left, then maybe that's what they could have. Whatever it is, what we see here is the beginnings of the very first church split. And it is completely and totally along racial and ethnic lines. So the complaint arises. Hey, these guys are doing this to the widows. And really, literally, the text says that a murmur went around. A rumor went around the entire community that this was going on. And this is how the life of the church begins. We share everything in common with everyone except for those who are not like us. This is an issue of justice for the poor. It's an issue of justice for God's community. It's an issue of what it means to live as God's family. So as we come together as the church, how do we overcome this? How do we overcome this favoritism or this racial segregation or this, the prejudices that we have or the inequality that we find within our community? Because, uh, make no mistake, this doesn't just happen in Acts chapter 6. I mean, this happens right now. We, we, you and me, we learn this very young, don't we? We learn how to differentiate between people. We learn how favoritism works. For me, when I was about 10 years old, I found out I had a brother. I had a stepbrother. Didn't find out until then. I met my stepbrother. My stepbrother was five, I was 10. I would spend the summers at my dad's house. My dad would go to work for the day. I was with my, not my stepbrother, he was my half-brother. The day with my brother, with my stepsister, and my stepmom. My dad would go to work. And I don't know what it was, but I always got in trouble. Always got in trouble. Now, I know I'm a troublemaker. But sometimes people around me get in trouble too. But that just wasn't happening. I always got in trouble. And my brother never got in trouble. In fact, my brother would punch me. And I would get in trouble. In fact, we would be playing Super Mario Brothers. And he would die on the video game. And I would get in trouble. I mean, those are some of the lighthearted things that happened, but it became a pretty serious deal for a 10-year-old boy. And I remember sitting down with my dad, and I don't know who said it. I don't know where I heard the words for the first time, whether it was from my dad or my stepmom or somewhere else entirely. But at that time, I distinctly remember learning the phrase, blood is thicker than water. Blood is thicker than water. That you're going to care for somebody who is your own blood before you're going to care for somebody who is an outsider. And the harsh reality is that that's pretty much true. That's pretty much what we do. We separate into groups and we care for those who are like us and we prefer to spend time with those who are like us. And we push away those who are other than us. It doesn't just end in childhood, it carries on into adolescence. We get into high school and it becomes very clear very quickly that there are the popular kids, there are the skaters, there are the surfers, there are the hicks, there are the stoners, there are the goths, the emo kids, there are the nerds, the geeks, and the dorks. Those are three subcategories of one larger group called the dweebs. And, <laughs> and we separate into this group, these groups and we pretty much know I know exactly who I am. 
and I know exactly who you are. I'm in this group and you're in that group and we don't talk. Or if we do, we fight. Or whatever. We do this in high school. As I've worked with high school students at GRX, one thing I've learned is that uh, one thing that parallels everything that's happening in this text right here is the immigrant experience. I work with high school students whose families have immigrated here from other countries, families who want desperately for their kids to maintain the traditions and the languages of the nations that they've come from, the culture and the history that their families bring to this country. And I've worked with high school students who want nothing to do with it. They want to have nothing to do with it. Because I don't want to be defined by that generation. I want to be defined by myself and by the culture that I live in now. I remember sitting down with a group of kids. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, they were all Korean high school students. And talking about some of the cultural expectations that they had in their families. Specifically surrounding dating. And a couple of them were like, yeah, my parents don't really care who I date. You know, I could date a white girl, I could date a Hispanic girl, I could date whoever. One kid was like, no, my parents have made it very, very clear that I will marry a Korean girl because a white girl will not cook for me. (laughs) And that might be true, but I asked him, I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, oh, I'm marrying a white girl. <laughs> and it was, this, it was this act of defiance. I know how you want to define me, but this is how I will define me. And we separate out like that. And it's easy to see how sides get taken and prejudices get formed. And it continues. And, and we bring these practices that we don't even know that we have, and we bring them into the church with us. And we come out of the world into the church but we bring a whole lot of the world into the church with us. And we don't even know it. The way that I see it, in the church, we divide people up. We we separate out these categories in at least three different ways. The the first is based on how we look. We, uh, We divide and we categorize. We separate based on how people look. Race is the most obvious one here. Based on how people look. We learn racial stereotypes early in life, that these people are like this, and these people are like this, and I'm like this, and this is how I interact with them, or how I don't interact with them. Um, To be honest with you, before coming to GRX, I felt pretty good about Asian people. As I came to the interview, (laughs) no, (laughs) that meant to come out a little different. As I came to my interview at GRX, I felt pretty good about Asian people until the interview. I was interviewed by like six people in order to get this job, and four of them asked me a variation of the question, how do you feel about working in an environment of almost entirely Asian Americans? Two of those people asked me, are you afraid of working in an environment of all Asian Americans? And I was like, I wasn't, but now I kind of am. Like, what, am, what do I need to be afraid of here? Um, and, and so, you know, I get this very real sense that, okay, I am different in this community. They are different. And for a while, I think, I held people at arm's length. So I wasn't quite sure what to do, how to bridge those gaps. 
And uh, it didn't help that the first day I started at GRX, a, a group of college students came to welcome me. They gave me a really nice gift basket, and one of them said, hey, nice to meet you. What's it like to be a part of the most oppressive race in the history of the world? <laughs> and I was like, I got nothing for that. <laughs> I found out later he was joking with me, which was a relief, but it still felt odd. And I come into the church, I come into my workplace or wherever I am, and I come in and I have these prejudices and I have these expectations or I have these stereotypes, and so do you. You might not even know them. And once I, you get here, once you get to that place, you acquire more. There are things about this community of people that, that I've been like, man, I love this because it's so different from my experience in the world. There have been things about this community of people that I've been like, I just don't get it. You know? And really, it's, well, it's the school thing. It's, man, how important is school? Like, I don't know. And I'm not saying it, it's everybody, but what I am saying is that when I work with high school students, and junior high students, I have some students who have so much homework, and so, they don't just go to school, they go to academies, and so much homework and so many extracurricular activities that I can never have a midweek event for high school and junior high students where we can come together and worship God because we're always hitting the books. And that's one way that, I, I, you know, I'm just being honest with you, that it's a prejudice, not a prejudice, but a, an expectation that I've gained from, from this community that, okay, this is a value that's really, really high. And it's a good value, but it's way different from mine. I mean, I value education. I have a PhD. But I also value high school kids being high school kids. I'm not saying that everybody does that, but let's just move on. <laughs> the fact is that churches separate over race. You have the black church down the street. You have the Asian church here, first Chinese church, uh, first Korean church over here. You have white churches over here. You have a Hispanic church over here. And we separate into these, all these different categories of churches. It's not inherently bad to worship people with people who are like you. But it makes me wonder, why have we separated like this? Why is there not more integration? Is it because we look at other people as other than us and we have an expectation that okay you guys are like that and we're like this and that's what we're going to do it's not just in race that uh, we separate over how we look teenagers for instance it's how they look it's also their attitudes but it's how they look i have a cousin named josh Josh is one of the greatest kids you will ever meet. If I told you he went to three different youth groups a week so he could learn more and more about Jesus, you would probably be like, wow, that's pretty cool. He's a teenager and that's what he does. Josh always wears, he also wears pants that are so tight that I think he has to use Vaseline to get them on. <laughs> he, he wears ridiculous t-shirts. He has his haircut funny. He wears eyeliner and, uh, and he rides a skateboard. His piercings and his dad is a police officer, so I don't know how he ever got allowed to do that. <laughs> but based on how he looks, you might look at him and think, that kid's weird. But based on who he is, that kid, <laughs> that kid loves God. He goes on missions trips twice a year. I hope he wears different pants. <laughs> it's not just the young, it's the old. This isn't so much a problem for our church because the oldest person in our church is like 50, maybe. 
But in some churches, the elderly get pushed to the side. My grandmother is 85 years old and she grew up in a traditional New England church. A few years ago, they got a new music minister at her church. She refuses to leave this church because grandpa built it with his hands before he died. They got a new music minister who stopped playing hymns altogether and she asked him, she went to him and said, will you please play a hymn once a month? And he said, no, absolutely not. Nobody in this community likes those songs. She said, me and my friends in the last two rows, we like those songs. But grandma pushed to the side, divided how you look between us and them. And it's not just the elderly, it's those who are disabled. We don't think about this a whole lot in the church. Those who need special access to, to things. Those who need special access to get into the door of the church or to, to go to the bathroom while they're at church. People who are different from us. We look at them and we see, wow, that person's different. And we may think, as I have been guilty of thinking numerous times, that my inaction towards them or with them is really helping them to be more independent in their disability. That's an excuse. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that those who look different from us, who have disabilities, <laughs> they need discipleship. They need mentoring. They need companionship. They need access to a place to worship. And sometimes, you know, they get left out of the daily distribution of bread. And it's not just based on how we look. We divide based on what people have and what we don't have. Here it's easy to talk about the homeless because we talk about the homeless quite often, really. And, uh, and for sure, that's true. I mean, we see the homeless in our communities and we, we think we have certain thoughts about them based on what they have or they don't have, based on their, the dirty clothes and their matted hair or the alcohol that they've just taken, uh, all the money they had to pan and they went and bought alcohol instead of food. But when we look at them, is that what we see or do we see the image of God standing in front of us? But it's not just that. It's on a, on a larger socioeconomic level. We live in the Silicon Valley where uh, there was just an article that came out this week about home prices in the Silicon Valley and how uh, bucking a nationwide trend, homes in this area right here are shooting up. The home values are through the roof. 15, sometimes 20%. It's a very blessed place to live. But when that's the place that you live, you forget often that there are neighborhoods and there are pockets in your communities that are not blessed economically. Pockets of economically depressed areas right here in Sunnyvale. As a matter of fact, right across the street. And these neighborhoods largely fall on ethnic lines. And so you have a large number of people of a particular ethnicity living in the same place in an economically depressed area. The fact of the matter is that it's right across the street. Right there. Do we do ministry right there? Up until very recently, no. We did nothing in this neighborhood. Until Kid Zone, uh, because they're amazing, they started blanketing this community with flyers for our events, our large church-wide events that we're doing. And, and they enrolled all of you to help go and distribute those flyers. And that's an amazing first step towards bridging that otherness that's there. But what about us going to them and not asking them to come to us? I don't know why we're not doing ministry right there. 
really, to be honest with you. But if it's because they are other than us, I think what Luke's telling us is that that's not a great reason. The third, reason, the third way that we divide up is based on what we've done or what people have done to us. It's how we separate ourselves out. When I was 20 years old, I would go to a juvenile detention facility every week, once a week, and I would meet with these kids who had been placed in there for various reasons. And I would, uh, we would speak to a large group, and then we would meet one-on-one with these, these 15, 16-year-old kids. And I remember very clearly one night meeting with a 15-year-old kid, and he wanted to pray to receive Christ, and he was so excited about finding a new lease on life. He was getting out in two weeks. And I said, hey man, you should come to my church, come to my youth group, we're going to set you up. And I was so excited, I was so pumped up about this, right? And I got up to leave, and he said, don't you want to know what I did? And I said, I don't care. You can tell me if you want. And he said, uh, I molested my baby sister. And I remember my heart sunk. And I didn't know what to do or to say. And I got outside of the facility. I got on my phone. I called my youth pastor. And I was like, Jim, I just invited a child molester to church. I just invited this kid who molested a baby to church. I'm sorry. And my youth pastor said to me, why? Why are you sorry? Do you think that he doesn't have a place in our church? Ended up the kid came to church. The kid raised all of his own money for camp that year. He came to camp. He asked me to baptize him in the lake at the camp. I baptized him. The next day he ran and jumped in the lake and broke his leg. When he got home, his mom, it wasn't a great family situation, his mom saw this as an opportunity and she sued our church and she sued our youth pastor. She sued our senior pastor and she sued the camp. I think all said and done, she got over $200,000 or something like that. But the kid was never allowed to come back to our church. Not on our end, on her parents' end. And I remember saying to Jim, Jim, if I would have known, I wouldn't have even invited him. And he said, that kid accepted Christ. That kid was baptized. What, do you think he doesn't have a place here? And we judge people based on what they've done or what they haven't done. We judge ourselves based on what we've done. If you only knew what was inside of me, you would know why I can't volunteer for student ministries. If you only knew what I did when I was in high school that I'm still living with, I'm not fit for ministry. We have this idea of what a perfect Christian is. This idea of what we are. And it holds us back and we divide. It's not the distribution of bread at tables, but it is a way to divide between each other. It is a way to divide and to, and to hurt that relationship between us as the family of God. And so we divide it up based on how we look, based on what we have or don't have, based on what we've done or what other people have done to us. I can't be friends with that person because of what he did to me. And we divide it up. And so, uh, God is pretty amazing here. God is pretty amazing because with our preconceived ideas and the new ones and living in community, all of that can be tough. How do we move past all of that? 
How do we move past all of those prejudices that we bring to the church with us? God's pretty amazing here because His response is completely and totally brilliant. Yeah, he doesn't even give this whole lecture about, uh, um, about reasons, that you should, uh, reasons that you should like black people or reasons that you should like Asian people. Or these are the reasons why you should get rid of your prejudices. God gives us no reasons for anything. There's no reasons here whatsoever. What God does here, what God does is that He empowers the apostles to equip the church to overcome exclusion and discrimination by having them serve one another. By having them serve one another. The apostles tell the church to choose seven to be over the distribution of the bread. People who are of good reputation. People who have the Holy Spirit. And, and the church chooses seven. And the apostles commission them. And it's, it is extremely likely that every one of the seven that you read about right there is a Hellenistic Jew. They are people who are from the offended party. And so when they're appointed, I'm kind of like, okay, we're going to get some revenge going on here, right? Take that, widows. But no, they don't. They don't. They don't meet inequality with inequality. What they do is they serve one another. They serve the entire community of God's people. They serve those who have offended them. The ones who are the offenders submit to the service of those who are serving. And as they serve one another, they, uh, they learn more about each other. They come into a greater relationship with one another. Because something happens when you serve one another. When you serve someone, you're acknowledging that that person is worthy of your action, of your effort, of your time, of your attention. You're acknowledging that that person is worthwhile that they are even made in the image of God. You are expending your time and your energy in giving to somebody else. And when you serve, you become fully invested in the life of another person. When you serve, the person who is other than you becomes your friend, becomes your brother, your sister in Christ. When you are served by somebody else, you have to acknowledge your dependence on somebody else. You have to acknowledge your dependence pretty much on somebody who is different from you. To acknowledge that you can't do this on your own, that you need somebody else. You also have to acknowledge that your weaknesses are completed in the person of someone else that God makes us to complement one another. That where I am weak, you are strong. Where you are weak, I am strong. And we come together as the church and we serve each other out of our gifts to bring about the kingdom of God in the world. That's how the church lives together in family. God gifts us to serve one another in equality. That's how we get over the prejudices that come with us and confront us. and We confront them and we learn from them. But we acknowledge that God gifts us to serve one another in equality. There's plenty of opportunities for us to serve one another right here. 
to serve others right here in this community. In terms of how we look, we've made a lot about this, this trip that the staff and the leadership team is going on, and we've invited the congregation to go on called Journey to Mosaic. We take four days and we explore the stories of uh, the African-American story, the Hispanic-American story, and the Asian-American story in California. Because part of serving one another is, uh, is committing to learn that person's story. You're welcome to come on this trip and, and engage in that process of learning. Um, and just spending time together with people who are different from you. Coming up with a plan to reach this community that surrounds us at King's Academy. You can volunteer in Kid Zone. I know that kids are really intimidating. They're intimidating for me. They are other, for sure. But uh, you can volunteer in Kid Zone, serving children, serving the parents who are around you who have kids, in high school ministry. And maybe you come and you serve in high school ministry and you decide, I can't handle this. These guys are too crazy, because they are. But then you know them. You know them and they're human to you. And you realize that these are kids that just need Jesus. We engage, we can engage and care for the disabled, those who have special needs. We spend time thinking through their needs. Spend time asking them, how can I help you? In terms of what people have, in terms of uh, what we've done, you don't have to go to a youth detention facility, although. It's an experience. You don't have to do prison ministry. But right here, you can be an advocate for the person next to you. Is the person next to you, has that person sinned against you? You can be proactive and go to them and sort it out and offer forgiveness so there's no longer this division between you. Have you sinned against somebody? Go to that person. Ask for forgiveness. So there's no longer division between you. We forgive one another. We love one another. And these are the ways that uh, these are the ways that God builds us as we serve each other with gifts. We serve each other in equal in equality. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. Babette's Feast. You ever seen it? Probably not. It's kind of an obscure film. 1987, so it's wicked old. And uh, it's a foreign film. Um, the whole film takes place in Denmark, and uh, it is all subtitled. So, guys, if you're looking for a good date movie, that will score you points. The subtitles. Um, the movie tells the story of a woman named Babette. She is French. She... Um, she has been displaced and marginalized. Her family in Paris has been killed. Her husband and her son shot in front of her. And she seeks refuge with this tiny little religious community on the coast of Denmark. How she even found herself there is ridiculous. How she even found herself there is ridiculous. And she ends up there. In this religious community, it's about ten people. who The community has been founded by the minister He's the father of the two women in the story that Babette lives with. The minister has been long dead, but they still honor his memory. And Babette comes into the house and she begs them, please let me serve you. I have nothing else. If you don't let me serve you, I will die. And she spends 14 years serving the sisters and serving the community. 
And she learns how they make bread and how they give this disgusting bread to the, to the shut-ins. And how uh, they buy groceries and they spend way too much money on the things that they buy. And she starts to make the food better. She starts to spend less on groceries but come home with more. And slowly and slowly, Babette improves the life of this community even while the relationships between the people in this church deteriorate. I remember when you sold me that wagon full of lumber. You cheated me. Yeah, I cheated you. That's okay. And the other guy says, well, that's okay because I got you back and you didn't even know it. And then uh, you see a woman say, I remember when you said these things behind my back. Well, you deserved it. And another couple was, I remember when you made me cheat on my husband with you. It's all very scandalous. And there's this division in the family and there's no more focusing on God. There's no more singing songs together. There's only backbiting and stabbing each other in the back. And what happens is that for the, for the minister's 100th birthday celebration, Babette volunteers to cook them a beautiful French feast. She takes all of the money that she has everything that she has, and she cooks them this incredible banquet that she sets before them. And as they are engrossed in the food and they are engrossed in her service, they start to talk with one another and they start to love one another and the barriers between them start to come down. And after the feast is over, the two sisters say, well, Babette, this was amazing. We expect you'll be returning to Paris now. And Babette says, I won't be returning to Paris. I spent every penny that I had on the meal. It turns out that Babette was the head chef at the most exclusive restaurant in Paris before coming to Denmark. And she took all of her talent, she took all of her possessions, and she gave them for the life of the community of God's people. And as she did, as she served them, the distance between them was bridged, and they came together and they worshipped God. And they were healed. And that's what God does with us. As we serve one another, as we uh, recognize not that you are other than me, but that you and I are God's image together in the world. If we serve one another, the barriers are broken down. And we love one another. And we serve together for the kingdom of God because God gifts us to serve each other in equality. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we thank You for Your Word. Father, uh, I, I acknowledge the... Uh, I acknowledge the, the things that I bring to the church, the things, the, the attitudes and the expressions that were formed in me before, before I even got here, before I even knew You. Father, I acknowledge Him. I know that they're there. And I pray, Father, that You continually bring them up in my mind, in my heart, to recognize how am I acting to divide my brothers and sisters? How am I defining other people? Especially in terms of how they are different from me. As if I were the standard. 
Father, we do this in the church. And when we do it, it's detrimental to not just the ministry here, not just what we're trying to accomplish. It's just detrimental to us. We lose out on brothers and sisters that You've given us. And so, Father, I pray that uh, we would look at Your Word. Look at what You've shown us in Acts chapter 6. How the community was divided largely along racial lines. And how your, your, your solution was so simple. It wasn't a ten-point sermon. It was serve one another. Father, it is our prayer this morning that You would so put in us a desire to serve those around us. Those who are different from us. That we would go into the world and we would seek to serve one another for You. We pray these things in Jesus' name.